Well, today our story continues on, right? The story of God, God's great adventure story, the rescue operation for his lost and wounded creation, that great love story, God's dogged commitment to restore his beloved unto himself. And we left our story with Abram and Sarai having just received the words of the promise, right? The words of life spoken into their barrenness and with great courage, They turned their backs on that barren and desolate present, and they walked boldly into the future of the promise, based on their radical trust in the future maker God. Now, in many ways, and you can turn there if you want to, because we're going to be dinging around a lot in various places throughout Genesis, but if you want to turn to Genesis 12, go ahead. Genesis 12, that's where we were last week. And in a lot of ways, uh, Genesis 12 was like a spiritual mountaintop, right? Imagine receiving this profound promise from God from his very lips declaring to you a future where before there was nothing but desolation and oblivion. Definitely kind of like a hallelujah type moment, right? Now our senior hires just returned from from teen camp, right? And I have to say, I have lost count of how many camps I've been to, retreats and special like youth events I've attended in my 32, almost 33 years, right? And I was blessed beyond measure to go to these camps and hear these great speakers and all these great experiences over the years. And year after year, I remember, and if you were a church kid, you know what I'm talking about, experiencing these really high, intense, like spiritual mountaintop moments, all right? Um, One of which actually resulted in my call to vocational ministry in Toronto, Canada, NYC 99, right? Represent, represent, yeah. No other alums from that in here, NYC 99? There you go. Crickets everywhere, all right. Well, I remember going to NYC and going to camps along with my youth buddies and experiencing this movement of the spirit and these profound and transformative ways. And more often than not, we came home with this strong sense of God's call in our life and with this renewed commitment to serve God with all of our hearts, right? But within a few weeks, without really meaning to or even realizing it, the mountaintop experience kind of moved into the background. Drowned out by all the noise of everyday living. You know, school's going to start up again and, and I'd be consumed with classes and sports and friends and all that stuff. And that spirit-filled, cool mountaintop breeze faded in our memory and in our life and we carried on as normal. And that's not to say that the, our lives weren't transformed by those moments. They totally were. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here by the pulpit, right? But I remember as a kid feeling this sense of failure at times. Like if I really loved God, then I could always dwell on that spiritual mountaintop, right? Clearly, I am a failure of faith because I felt like I just kept slipping right off the edge, right? Off that spiritual, that spiritual mountaintop. But older and wiser, lives of faith are not built on mountaintops, are they? They are hashed out in the dirt and in the dust of the ordinary step-by-step in between the mountaintop spaces, the valleys, the climbs, and the descents. And Abram and Sarah were no different. They too had experienced this extraordinary mountaintop experience with God, right? Where they felt God so closely. And we, the reader, we, us, we know, it's nice, we get like kind of a bird's eye view of the story. We know that God made a promise in chapter 12 that they're going to have a son. And you and I both know, if we've read ahead at all, God keeps his promise. Isaac is born. 
And then from Isaac comes Jacob, and then Jacob has like a football team worth of children, right? With a few spares on the side, and they become the nation of Israel. And so we know all that it all works out in the end. We know, right? So it's kind of like there's no suspense to the story for us. But what we fail to appreciate is the journey that Abram and Sarai had to make to get from point A to point B, right? To get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest. Because after that mountaintop experience in Genesis 12, nothing happens. Nothing. Days pass. Weeks pass. Months pass. Years. Years, people. Nothing changes. No sun comes. Abram and Sarai have moved forward in faith. They have left behind their country and their kinsmen. But the future still seems pretty grim, right? And so as time has passed and the word of God does not come to fruition, doubts creep in, don't they? Did did I mishear? As as our stomachs settle from the butterflies of that spiritual uh, mountaintop, we begin to wonder... As that mountaintop wanes in our minds, has anything changed? Has anything changed? But what is there to do, you know, but to just trudge forward, just keep moving on? And so Abraham and Sarai just do right that very thing. And the passage is following chapter 12, and we're not going to read them all. But it's like through 13 and 14, nothing has changed. They're not even really acting any differently. Abraham and Sarai, they live in this new land, but there's a famine. So they go to Egypt and they get in this weird like deceit thing with Pharaoh and Abraham lies and said Sarai's his wife. Uh, But apparently Sarah is a very, she's basically a babe. She's 70 years old, but she is a babe because Pharaoh wants her to come and live with him. So brings her to the household and it's this whole big thing and they end up getting kicked out of Egypt. And so their whole life is just marked by deception. And in the next chapter, there's violence. They say, you know, God's with them and they have this promise. They're carrying in their pockets, but nothing has changed. The promise is still that. It's a promise. There is no land and there is no children. Life is just carrying on, marked by deception and by violence. And so Abram and Sarai, they're not even living into their calling as that trusting, image-bearing family of God. And to be fair, why, you know, why would they? Nothing has changed. God's word seems void. It feels empty in many ways. And it's a shocking thing to say that. I know from the pulpit, I just said God's word felt void. I know. But it's honest. Because we receive these promises from God. These promises of God's presence and his provision and his guidance. And we raise our hands in worship with gratitude at God's revelation and his palpable nearness. And then we go home and we go to work and we go to that doctor's appointment we've been dreading. And then we have to go to the bank to hash it out there, right? And often it seems that nothing has changed. And so trudge, trudge, trudge through the plains and the valleys we go. Abraham and Sarai, trudge, 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 no familiar, no fulfillment in sight. And then we come to chapter 15. It's not obvious in the text, but by the time you get from chapter 12 to chapter 15, years have passed. Most likely like a decade has passed. There's no baby. There's no land. And yet here they are. And so close to the 10 years has passed. Nothing has changed. Is the word of the Lord void? It's the painful question, right? And God speaks. Chapter 15. 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Don't be afraid. Abraham hasn't even expressed any fear in the scripture at this point. But God, God knew, right? God knew that the fear must have been growing with each passing year, each passing day, the anxiety rising in his heart and in the mind of Sarai as they say, another year, no baby, another decade, no fulfillment of the word of the Lord. It's fear and disappointment. And if you were me, add in a dash of anger and bitterness. Thank you very much. Right? But maybe that's just me. That's why I'm not a biblical character. Um, Abraham, he doesn't pull any punches at all. He says to God in his response, oh Lord, what will you give me? Because I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is going to be my heir. I don't want to hear your talk, God. I don't want to hear your talk of great rewards. It's meaningless because I don't have a kid. You promised me a kid, and I don't have one. See, I think there might be a little dash of bitterness in there. Do you think? I think maybe a little sprinkle, at least. And that's when God and Abram go for a walk. They go outside into the night sky. Now, a few years ago, I was actually doing the math. It was like 12 years ago because I'm, I'm getting up there, right? Oh, my word. I was like a few years ago. Oh, wait, no, like 12. I was uh, in college, and my parents were moving from, um, they had already moved from Kansas to Nevada. And I was helping them drive back and forth for some reason. I don't remember what. And when we do big road trips, we go, like, all out. Let's get to point A to point B as fast as humanly possible. Sleep at a minimal rate. Okay. So we were, like, the middle of the night in God knows where, Wyoming. Okay. And we're driving. There's not a human in sight. And we were driving, and all of a sudden I hear this horrible, like, thumping, like, flack, 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 kind of like that. And in my, like, fatigue-stricken brain, my first thought was, there's a helicopter, and it's following us so closely. That's how loud it was, right? No, it was just a tire blown. But like I said, I was utterly fatigued. So it was just, flack, 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 flack. So I have to pull over on the side of the road in the middle of Wyoming, and I'm standing there doing nothing because I have no, like, helpful skills in the real world. I can do nothing of value, basically. So um, this is all I got. So I hope it works out uh, in the pulpit. Um, I couldn't fix anything. So I'm standing there as all the, you know, helpful people are fixing the tire. And I look up and, oh, my word, the stars. I was, I'm not a city girl. I've never lived in, like, New York City or some great metro. So I thought I had a pretty good handle on what the nighttime sky looked like. Not like in Madagascar, you know, where the lion, the animals are living in the zoo, and they look up, and they're like, oh, look, the star is out. <laughs> because that's all they can see, right? Oh, no, just kidding. It's a helicopter. Um, I'm not like that. Like, I've lived in small towns. I know about stars. But not stars like that. Oh, my mercy. There were stars upon stars upon stars. And the stars in some places were so thick, it didn't even look like stars. It looked like sparkly night clouds. Like they were, you couldn't even distinguish the individual points of light. There were stars beyond counting. And I imagine that is the nighttime sky that God revealed to Abram. And he said, Abram, look, like these stars, so shall your offspring be. 
Oh, it's that promise once again. And Abram believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. A miracle of faith if there ever was one, right? Abram trusting God more than his eyes could see. But Sarai, she wasn't there. She didn't get the nighttime tour. She didn't bear witness to the vision of the Lord. She didn't get to see the covenant made, right? She was home alone in her barrenness, losing confidence in the character of the good future maker. And so when Abram gets home and he's like, his face is aglow from this encounter with God, she is unimpressed to say the least. So unimpressed that she's got plans. Plans to make a future for their family, for herself and for Abraham. And the plan, stop waiting for this promised nonsense and let's actually start building a family, shall we, right? Let's use that slave girl and she can go ahead and bear our children. I know that sounds like freakishly weird to us, but apparently it was a normal practice at the time. And so in Sarai, we see this fear taking control. This lie is taking control of her heart. God's word is void. The future hinges on you and you alone, so it's now or never. Get moving. And Abram listened to the words of Sarai. And thus, Ishmael was born. The child of impatience, the child of rebellion, the child born of fear, whose very existence is a testimony to the distrust of Abram and Sarai. It's an act of prideful idolatry, a blatant act of rebellion, born out of this heart-wrenching grief and disappointment with God for not acting. Because God is so slow, who maybe just forgot his promise, right? You know, we are so often critical, I mean, maybe just me, are so often critical of Abram and Sarai for their foolishness. But remember, we know this works out. They didn't know that. They can only see this one step at a time in front of them. And by the time baby Ishmael is born, 11 years have passed from the giving of the promise. 11 years. That's a good bit of time when you are waiting for God's good future to be born in your life. And in varying degrees, I think we have all experienced the tension of Abram and Sarai, right? Uh, The fear, the wondering, the misgivings, the doubts, like... Is God really who he says he is? Is God actually going to do what he says he's going to do? And for pity's sakes, can he just get on with it? Like, while I'm still young, God. Because I'm so over this waiting. But God will not be prodded, poked, or guilted to act apart from his divine purposes. And so following Sarai's rebellious, rogue future-making... God, does God get on task to just prove that I'm God? No. No, not at all. In fact, 14 years of crickets. 14 more years of divine silence. 14 years before God speaks again. That is just mean, right? But he does eventually speak. 14 years later, God speaks again. Same promise, more details. Chapter 17, he says, I will make you as numerous and give you offspring to you through Sarah. Uh, name changed at this point. Establish my covenant with you and give you this land. It's the same song, third verse, right? Abraham has responded to God's promise again. 
Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. It appears that the promise has withered inside of Abraham. Instead of clinging tightly to the promise of God for the child of the promise from him and Sarah, instead he says, can you just go ahead and bless this here son, the one I have? Can you go ahead and bless plan B that I've already gunned on and gunned on, uh, done and enacted? <laughs> kind of already have it in the works. Could you just bless this future that I've already made for myself? It sounds foolish, right? But we are guilty as charged. Oh, Lord, bless my efforts. Oh, Lord, bless this good work that I am doing for you. Oh, Lord, bless my attempts to make a future for myself and for my family. And God is merciful and God does work for the good from wherever we find ourselves. God does make a way for even poor Ishmael, right? But that's not God's best. God's best is the promise, no matter how long it takes. And so mercifully, mercifully, the fulfillment of God's promise is not contingent upon my ability to conjure up enough faith. In spite of persistent doubt and active rebellion, in spite of blatantly going after plan B, instead of trusting God's plan A, God moves the promise forward. Now, let's read the rest of the text, shall we? If you want to follow along, it'll be up on the screen too. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Remember, this is 24 years into this gig. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring you a little bread so that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram hastened into the tent of Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make the cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah, who was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and it had ceased to be with Sarah as the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, as after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is it anything too wonderful for God? At that set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, oh yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Same song fourth verse the promise again within a year a son will be born and sarah's response laughter now some people say that sarah is laughing at the absurdity of it like come on now she is 90 years old 
She ain't having any babies, right? And some say she is laughing at the incredulity of it, at the silliness, kind of like a rude teenager laughing at silly old Grandpa God saying those ridiculous things again. Maybe so. But that's not the laughter that I hear. The laughter that I hear from Sarah is bitter. The laughter I hear is tired. Oh, so very tired, worn down from years of waiting. I hear resistance. I hear a refusal to hope one more time. Nope, not again. 24 years is long enough. I am too old for this foolishness. I am too old to hope. I am too old to believe in the words of this strange God. And God hears the hurt and he hears the fear and the hopelessness in Sarah's laughter. And he asks, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now your version might say, if you were following along, is anything too difficult? And it's one of those tricky Hebrew words. It tries to encompass this sense of marvelous, extraordinary, seemingly impossible accomplishment, right? Is anything too hard, too marvelous, too extraordinary, too impossible for the Lord? Is any deep, dark, hopeless pit too far for the reach of the Lord? It's the question of the age. Is God God? Can God do what God says God can do? The question is asked all throughout Scripture. The people of Israel ask it when they're backed up against the Red Sea and the Egyptians are closing in. Is God God? Can God save? Hannah, barren for years, crying her eyes out on the temple steps, is waiting for the promise of a son, and she says, Is God God? Can he do what he says he'll do? David as he's hiding in the caves from Saul. He has been anointed king, and yet here he is running for his life. And he's hiding in the cave saying, Is God God? Can God do what he says he's going to do? The people of Israel, as they sit along the river, and they're in Babylon for 70 years, wondering, Is God God? Can God do what God says he'll do? And a young girl sitting in the glow of a heavenly messenger, having just received word that she would bear the Messiah, asks, is this too wonderful for the Lord? And it's a question that we, too, must answer. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too difficult, too extraordinary, too remarkable for the Lord? I don't, I don't know that anyone here is going to stand up and blatantly say, yep, right here, this situation, right here. The chaos is just too wild. It is out of control. It is beyond the scope of redemption. But the fact is, while we might not stand up and announce that, sometimes we say that very thing with our actions, don't we? <laughs> when we are faced with our dead ends and our barrenness, and when we choose that idolatrous path of making a future for ourselves in our own way and on our own timetable, we are essentially declaring, this is too difficult for the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and take it from here. We are, in fact, practicing functional deism. It's this idea that God is this extraordinary watchmaker, and he set the world to ticking, and now he's back in the workshop drinking tea, hoping it works out. Right? But not getting involved in any way with creation. 
it 100% relies on us. And so while we might not come out and say, yeah, this situation, way too hard for God, I'm going to have to take it from here. We don't say that, but we live like it. But if instead we declare, no, nothing is too hard for God, we open the door for God's good future in which all things accordance with God's purposes are possible and all means all. In the story of God today, with Abraham and Sarah, neither of them ever answered the question. Did you notice that? The messengers say, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And they respond with silence because they don't have it in them to answer in faith. But remember, the grace of God, the, oh, the grace of God, the promise does not hinge upon my ability to just believe hard enough. It depends on God's gracious gift. Thanks be to God. And so finally, finally, 25 years later, Genesis 21, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, whoever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, and yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Finally, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said. And he did for Sarah as he had promised. From promise to fulfillment, 25 years. But the good future maker was found to be faithful. And it turns out, after all that time, all the anguish and the pain and the discomfort and the suffering, that throbbing hurt that they had endured for so long had actually all along been labor pains. God birthing something new in them. God birthing someone new from them. Isaac and Sarah laughs. No longer is it that bitter laugh, the laugh of fatigue and fear and failure, the laugh of resistance and bitterness. It is the laugh transformed. The laughter of inexpressible joy and hope. It is the laughter at the shocking newness of this baby. This baby, this promised embodied in the soft sweetness of a newborn baby. In the story of God, we must resist the temptation to skim over those 25 years from chapter 12 to 21. You can't skip that middle part. There is no false triumphalism, no delusional preaching for me that says, oh, just believe, hang in there. The promise is coming. That's not honest. 
Because sometimes God's promise takes a really long time, like 25 years long time, like 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament, like 2,000 years we have been waiting for Jesus to come and to set things right. And we have to be honest about how hard that is. We have to be honest about the difficulty of waiting. But at the same time, we must resist the temptation to take shortcuts to God's future. Because there are no shortcuts. When we try to circumvent God's way of doing things to make our own way, we just complicate things. And we bring a bunch of Ishmaels into the equation. Like Abraham and Sarah. Our obedience and faith might come in fits and starts as we wrestle with the reality of a really long obedience in the same direction. But the challenge of our text today is just as hard as last week, I'm afraid. We must answer the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard, too wonderful, too extraordinary for God? What answer is my life giving to that question? If we are busy implementing plan B, throwing ourselves into making a good future for ourselves and our families, and just ask God to bless what we got going on, then we got to be honest and admit that we have bought into the lie that my chaos and my brokenness and my dead end is beyond the hand of the Lord. And that is a lie. What this test, text is asking is not for an attitude change, just believe and hope for the best, but for a real trust in God's power to do what he says he will do. And you know what? It is okay if today you can't answer. Because Sarah and Abram, they couldn't answer either. They were so tired. They were so fatigued by the waiting and the hoping. They were all out of strength. But remember, God's promise does not hinge on your ability to just faith hard enough. It depends on God's gracious gift. And so can we together wait in the midst of this barrenness and in the dead ends and in the chaos and the uncertainty for our fear to be transformed into joy-filled laughter? Today we have the privilege of receiving communion. And in many ways, the elements of the sacrament of communion are physical reminders of God's faithfulness, of God's good promise keeping, right? The bread and the juice remind us of God's faithfulness to his promises. Pastors, if you would come forth to help. And reminder, the the plate in the middle is gluten-free. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink this bread or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you come to receive these elements, may you be reminded of God's steadfast faithfulness to keep his promises, even if it takes a long time. And may you trust God more than your eyes can see.
Father God, we thank you that you keep your promises, no matter how long it takes. And Lord, would you help us to live into your good future? May we not run wild and go rogue with plan B. May we trust that regardless of how long it takes, you are at work. Give us eyes to see, Lord. And when we can't see, would you help us to trust more than our eyes can see? You are good. You are faithful. And you are making a good future for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place and walk with faith into the promise, trusting God more than your eyes can see, because he is at work making a good future. Now go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.